Welcome to Challenging Silence, a podcast from Women's Health and Women's Science Community Health Center. On this show, we are having much needed discussions about topics related to female genital mutilation or cutting with survivors, advocates, and community members. We're your hosts, Tommy Lola and Nanti. Challenging Silence is brought to you by the Flourish Project, made possible through funding from Women and Gender Equality Canada. You can listen to this podcast series on all major podcast listening platforms and our website, flourishaccess.ca. Please note that this podcast covers topics of a sensitive nature, including domestic abuse and violence. To ensure privacy and safety, some guests have chosen to remain anonymous. This podcast is age appropriate for 16 plus. Addressing violence against women and providing victims with access to adequate support services is a well-talked-about issue here in Canada. Even more than ever with the sharp rise in domestic violence over the last two years. But the truth of the matter is that not all victims of gender-based violence are being supported adequately. Statistics show that immigrant women may be more vulnerable to domestic violence due to economic dependency, language barriers and a lack of knowledge about community resources. And when racialized women report violence, their experiences are often taken less seriously within the criminal law system, and their perpetrators routinely receive less harsh punishments. Joining us this week to speak more on this topic is Wangari Tarar, who is the Director of Research and Programs here at Women's Health and Women's Hands Community Health Center. Wangari has been involved in health service delivery, research, and advocacy for over 20 years. She is recognized for her contributions to community-based research on HIV issues and effective actions relevant to African and Caribbean women living in Canada who have migrated from countries with generalized HIV epidemics. A very warm welcome to you, Wangari, and please tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself. So my name is Wangari Tharao, and I work at Women's Health and Women's Health Community Health Center as the Director of Research and Programs. Women's Health is a health center that focuses on supporting racialized women from Africa, the Caribbean, Latin America, and South Asian communities who are living in Toronto including uh, trans and non-binary people. I've worked with Women's Health for more than 20 years and have supported community-based programs, including research and other community-focused programs that are dealing with issues that are relevant to the racialized women that Women's Health and Women's Hands works with. Thank you so much for that introduction, Wangari. So Women's Health and Women's Hands does a lot of community-based and peer-led programming focused on improving the lives and health of racialized women that are informed by the voices of the women we serve. How important are these program types in addressing issues that affect the health and well-being of vulnerable populations, particularly when we talk about gender-based violence? 
Well, peer-led programs are really, really important to women's health and women's hands. And we have actually used peer-led programs for more than 15 years. They're successful because they offer emotional, social connections and information support to women who share similar experiences. And the shared experiences actually vary. It could be cultural because you come from the same cultural backgrounds, or it can be dealing with a specific health issue in particular, mental health, HIV, diabetes. And people who have that shared experience are the ones or women who have that shared experience are the ones who support women's health and women's hands programs. Peers are also really important because they facilitate a deeper or wider penetration into communities to engage, educate, and disseminate information to the communities that women's health and women's hands works with. And this deeper penetration is dependent on the the very large social networks um, that peers actually have. Um, They have large social networks because they are linked to social organizations, they are linked to religious organizations, they are linked into settlement spaces where women actually live and they congregate. So if you have a program that you want to have a wider and deeper penetration, peers are the best way to go. So because they will help facilitate that process uh, by taking information into communities where service providers actually can't uh, can't reach. Peers also have a, a very deep understanding of the cultural nuances of, 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 of many of the cultures which they come from. They also can speak the languages. Um, so they can actually engage with, um, with communities in a culturally appropriate and safe ways. And this is really important when you're thinking about sensitive issues such as gender-based violence, stigmatized issues such as mental health and HIV. So when you have peers who can link you into these communities, they are able to navigate the cultural nuances in ways that are actually beneficial to the programs you're running or the information you're trying to, uh, to, uh, to disseminate. They're also near to the ground. We get to learn a lot of what is happening in communities from the peers that we actually work with because they're living there, they're listening, and they hear what are some of the issues that are actually emerging, and they actually bring them to the organization before any research projects can actually actually be done. We all know research takes a long time to, to formulate, to implement, and to generate the information. But when you have peers on the ground, they actually bring you this information as it emerges. They are also the best, the, 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 the most important ambassadors for the organization. They raise awareness of the organization they're involved with in their communities so that, you know, communities get to know the programs you offer and the issues you're dealing with that are relevant to the uh, to the community. So peer-led programs are really, really important and you cannot engage with communities effectively unless you utilize those who come from those communities, either as staff 
or as peers and for women's health at any given time in the year, we have more than 30 to 50 peers who are engaged in our programs. And I can give an example of how important peers actually are. Many, many years ago, we were doing a research project and we were supposed to recruit 500 people. And going into six months, we had not recruited anybody. We had posted flyers across the, the, across the GTA, given the flyers to organizations. Um, so we had partners we were working with, but we weren't recruiting people. Until we figured out, oh, why don't we get a couple of people from these communities we are targeting and see how it works? And I am telling you, in less than six months, we had recruited more than 450 participants. And because we were asking people how they got to hear about the study, out of the 456 people who participated, only two people said they responded to a flyer. That's how we realized the power of peers in supporting programming. And even for, you know, thinking about gender-based violence, because of its sensitivity, peers are really, really important in helping navigate that arena, creating trust with the, with, with the participants, supporting them through the issues they're actually dealing with. And people always say about women's health and women's health, I like women's health because there are people who look like me who are helping me deal with the issue that I'm actually dealing with. And for women's health, peers are part of the tough force that women's health has access to, to support programs that are delivered to racialized women. Thank you so much for sharing that, Bongari. You talked a lot about how much uh, the peers are working in the communities, you know, the engagement that the peers offer to the communities. And it sounds a lot like it's not just empowering the communities, but it also empowers the peers as well, which is such a, a great way to work alongside not just communities, but peers. And I, I think also because you did say that it raises awareness for organizations as well, because the peers are on the ground and doing the groundwork. It, it serves such a, a trifecta, which is not just the community, the peers, but also the organizations as well. So thank you so much for elaborating more on that. And, and when you say that, it actually then gets to my next point that I didn't raise. The relationship between peers and the organization is reciprocal. It's a re relationship whereby peers are getting something out of that relationship and the organization is getting something out of that relationship. And part of what peers get out of it, as you mentioned, is capacity building and fostering of leadership for them to be able to move forward in their lives and utilize whatever skills they get uh, as part of their own growth, as well as supporting their communities in the roles that they're actually playing. Thank you for that, Wungari. You definitely raised some very valid points about the importance of peer-led programs and in reaching communities and the targets for community-based programs. And when we think of peers in terms of gender-based violence programs, we know that peers offer a different type of support to the women of color and immigrant women, especially when they're looking for support that is culturally specific. And we know that there are a lot of organizations that are not as unique as Women's Health, where we do have staff members who 
um, look like and have similar cultural backgrounds as the clients we serve. So for some women who don't have access to unique programs like ours, having peers within organizations who are like them, it can provide them with this culturally specific support is very important and helps build the resilience of survivors. Speaking of gender-based violence and immigrant women, We've seen reports during the COVID-19 pandemic shows there's been an increase in the number of cases of gender-based violence reported. It's been as much as 400% increase in the calls to organizations who provide helplines and support services to battered and assaulted women, especially during the initial year of the pandemic in 2020. How safe do you think these spaces and programs that offer helplines and support services are? And can we rely on them to adequately support survivors and respond to gender-based violence in terms of immigrant communities? The first point I would like to make is most GBV programs are offered in mainstream spaces. And because they're offered in mainstream spaces, they lack the cultural appropriateness and safety that is needed for racialized women who are experiencing gender-based violence. This was an issue even before COVID, but it was magnified during COVID because there were more people coming out, people locked down with, with the perpetrators of violence and having, having limited spaces available to them. In particular, even within those mainstream organizations, there were limited spaces to cater to all the women who were experiencing gender-based violence based on the spike during COVID-19. And for racialized women, based on the needs, your own specific needs for culturally safe, culturally appropriate services, this mainstream model does not fit and it does not meet the needs of, of racialized women. I think when you think about the, the, the many intersections of women's lives, for example, the intersections of race, of gender, of sexual orientation, immigrant status, and the multiple traumas that women have actually experienced in their lives creates very unique situations for women who are experiencing gender-based violence. And those intersections, when you top it up with the gender-based violence, it makes the situation even more complex. And it's a lot of the service providers within mainstream organizations don't seem to grasp this very unique situation of racialized women experiencing gender-based violence and their specific situation. People always talk about we have trauma-informed services, but those trauma-informed services do not engage with the systems that are causing harm to women. Instead of them helping resolve your issues, they continue to perpetuate the same systemic stigma and discrimination that is experienced based on race, based on gender, based on sexual orientation. And when all those pieces are intersecting, the situation is actually even more complex. And many providers don't have the ability to tease out all those different pieces, deal with them within the context of gender-based violence. They will deal with the symptoms, but they will not deal with the grounding issues that are really, really important to, to racialize women. So what do I think? 
I actually think that there needs to be programs that are specific to racialize women for gender-based violence. But that's not to say that mainstream organizations should be allowed to get away with it. I think there should be a training program to help facilitate their understanding of the complexity of the situation of racialized women who are experiencing gender-based violence. And that training will help improve their skills in helping women, supporting them through the situations that actually require support. I think tailored programs are very important, but you shouldn't let the mainstream get away with not providing good services and specific and tailored services for racialized women. Thank you very much for that. You are correct that many support services for women impacted by gender-based violence, they are mainstream and at times are cookie cutter. And many do not realize or take into account in into consideration the intersecting identities that racialized women have and how they interconnect to oppress them and at times increase their risk of experiencing gender-based violence. And it's very important that all programs catered to women who are at risk of or experience gender-based violence should take an intersectional approach so that you're ensuring that as they reach out to you, reach out for help and access your services, you are providing them with the full package and catering to all their unique needs. That way they can successfully and seamlessly live in abusive situation and move forward in a positive light in their life. So thank you for all those points that you brought up. They're very, very important. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually also thinking about the the engagement that is needed to ensure that one organization, no matter how good it is, cannot provide all the services that women actually need. If you're thinking around, uh, you know, a woman is living within a specific context, experiencing gender-based violence. If your program is tailored towards gender-based violence, you need to also be looking at the, the broader picture and thinking, who else can help resolve the multiplex issues this person is experiencing? And how do you ensure seamless ways of linking people to others who are providing what they need, what women actually need, other than the direct GBV services that are needed? You know, looking at a woman holistically, not just as a piece, you know, this is a a compartmentalized company. You deal with this, but who else is dealing with all these other pieces? Ensuring there is a seamless mechanism for those linkages that are actually needed to do that. Yes, you're very correct. Partnership and collaboration between organizations is very vital um, to achieving what we're trying to achieve. Like CHC is working with legal clinics, housing support services, law enforcement, employment support services. That way you're catering to all the different needs a woman when she comes to you. You're ensuring that you are able to refer her and advocate for her so that she's reaching all these goals that will bring her up and pull her away from a negative situation to a more positive situation. So you're very correct on that. Yes, I like the fact that you talked about accountability and possible action plans for mainstream organizations. 
And I know that Women's Health in Women's Hands has continued to do collaborations with other organizations and continue to do research and work with different mainstream organizations to create possible action plans or possible programming and projects to make sure that these organizations are able to provide holistic care, as we're saying. Our next question is, although violence affects all women, some are more at risk due to additional discrimination and barriers and may not have access to services that meet their needs. How best can we ensure that attainable, holistic, gender-based violence programs are being created for vulnerable communities? What role can communities, leaders, and individuals play in this task? I know you've answered quite a bit of this question, but maybe you could elaborate more on what role communities, leaders, and individuals can play with this task. I think the one of the things that I can highlight is use an example. What role can community leaders and individuals play in this task? I remember many years ago when Women's Health uh, started providing services for female genital mutilation uh, slash cutting. And we recruited many women leaders, particularly Somali women, Sudanese women from communities that were affected by FGMC and provided them with the training to become advocate, the voices that that were going to raise awareness around the issues of uh, FGMC within their communities. And one of the really interesting things that came out of this is that these women eventually got involved with advocating with the government of Canada to eliminate the practice of FGMC in Canada. They were so involved that during the discussion of the legislation, buses of women traveled from Toronto to Ottawa to go sit in parliament. And some of them were actually speaking on the issue of FGMC, which tells you that when you're dealing with issues such as gender-based violence, such as um, stigmatized issues in the community, you will get the best results if you utilize community members who have the skills to lead and advocate at different levels to support their communities deal with an issue. And I'm telling you, those Somali and Sudanese women were so powerful that by the time they were through, they actually, some of them actually spoke in parliament around the harm of female genital mutilation and their powerful voices added on to what the legal issues, the legal issues that are being presented by those ones who had legal skills and so on. So it makes a lot of sense when you're thinking about gender-based violence to actually involve in particular women leaders from affected communities, give them the skills and the training and the expertise to be able to educate, to advocate, and to support those dealing with uh, with gender-based violence in their communities. I think I cannot say enough about the power of women leaders or any leaders in in the community who actually take up an issue and decide they are going to move it at different levels. I think it's very powerful. Thank you so much for giving us real-life cases to reference to. This is the proof that these collaborations with the community leaders and community members is very vital to the success of some of this programming and even to the success of the communities and the community members. So thank you for that. Yes, utilizing community leaders, especially women leaders, is vital to 
achieving the goals that we're trying to achieve in preventing gender-based violence in our racialized communities and adequately, properly supporting um, women who are survivors. And speaking of leadership, do you think the Canadian government is doing enough to support communities and organizations when dealing with these issues in terms of funding for programming? Because they are another part of important leadership in making a change here in Canada. So do you think they're doing enough in terms of the resources they're providing to communities and organizations to address the issue of gender-based violence? They could do more. I, I, I think there's a, I have seen in the last, probably in the last 10 years, increased funding in programming on gender-based violence. There hasn't been funding previous to the last 10 years. There was very limited funding around gender-based violence other than the shelters. The shelters have always been there, but the shelters, most of them were funded by the provincial government. But at whichever level you look at, resources are never enough. And resources never go to the people or, or to the communities that, that are experiencing gender-based violence. For example, when you look at the number of programs that are, that are funded for racialized women, they're very limited. Funding keeps on going to the same, same, same organizations from year to year. You never see new groups getting funded. Uh, it, is the same, it is the same groups. And because they were very well established, they keep on getting uh, the money, leaving out the smaller organizations, which usually tend to be led by women and in particular racialized women. Those ones, even with all this funding that is floating around from the Canadian government in the last 10 years, it is usually the mainstream organizations that were getting that money. Racialized organizations that are, that are run by women on gender-based violence hardly ever receive any funding. The other piece is that it, it's not just the, 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 the Canadian government, even the Ontario government is the same. Women's Health has been trying to get funding for a gender-based violence program at Women's Health and Women's Health for the last 10 years. We have applied for funding through the Ontario government three times and have never been funded. You can't tell me all these three times. It's because we weren't writing good proposals or it's because we were not, um, I don't know what else we could have done to get that money. We have applied three times, but I've never gotten funded. They never came back and told us we didn't fund you because of A, B, C, and D. We never got a response. We just got a response. You didn't get fund. You were not approved for funding. So even if you wanted to improve your proposal, you would never really know why your proposal was not funded. You find a, a, a lot of review reviewers would give you feedback that we didn't fund you because of A, B, C, and D. And then you will go back and next time using that input, you refine your proposal. That has never been the same with the Ontario government. And I'm sorry to say that. So all I'm saying, it's not just the Canadian government. It is also the, 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 the provincial, the municipal. There isn't enough funding for gender-based violence, but there is even less for racialized groups that are working to eliminate GBV within their, within their communities. So that, can the government do better? Of course, they can do better. But then they can also ensure targeted funding. 
targeted funding to make sure that you identify this group of women or this, these populations have limited programs. So we are going to focus the next phase of funding on these populations. I guess that's the only way smaller organizations will ever get money. They will always be at a limited in how much they actually get from the, the government, always at a disadvantage. And part of it, you know, I always think, based on the way systems have always discriminated against racialized people, in particular, anti-Black racism and systems is always there. How much does it impact funding? For me, that's a big question and a very major question. Yes, I agree with you that the government definitely has more work to do. They could do better in terms of their support through funding. And I think the increase of the increased rates of gender-based violence during this last three years has been a wake-up call for the, both the provincial and federal government and has led to an increase in financial investments and support through funding. But there is a need for more focus on programs for racialized communities. As you said, there's a need for more targeted funding where you identify the groups, populations that are more at risk, and then there should be a shift on focusing on funding organizations and programs that are are catered to those populations. I know this year, Women in Gender Equality Canada put out a call for a proposal to address the gaps in gender-based violence prevention and support for at-risk populations through either promising practices or community-based research. So I will say that this is definitely a step in the right direction as it ensures that more funds will go towards organizations like ours that help Black or racialized um, LGBTQ, non-status, temporary status migrants, immigrants and refugee women. These women who research has identified that they are most at risk of experiencing gender-based violence here in Canada. Yeah, I'm actually hoping this is going to help create some of the very unique programs that are needed for racialized women around gender-based violence. The other piece for me is when um, now we're talking about post-COVID recovery. And post-COVID recovery is meant to help communities recover from the impact of COVID. And like you say, gender-based violence increased during COVID and racialized women, of course, were more at risk based on so many intersecting factors. So I'm hoping that the recovery is going to be tailored. You know that you understand the impact of COVID on racialized populations and gender-based violence so that you are tailoring the recovery to the impacts that were left behind by COVID. So I'm hoping people who are developing programs for that call thought about what is it going to take for racialized women to recover from gender-based violence experience during COVID and tailoring the programs, because that's the only way we can talk about post-COVID recovery that is specific to key groups of, um, uh, of the population. 
Thank you so much, Wangari, for all the wonderful conversation that we've had today. You have informed us, you have educated us on some things. I'm sure our, our followers and our listeners are going to learn quite a few things from this conversation that we had today. So thank you for joining us for today's episode about the importance of community-based programs to respond to the growing experience of gender-based violence among women, especially those from vulnerable communities. This critical episode is the perfect roundup for our Challenging Silence podcast, in which we've had conversations with survivors, advocates, and community members about topics related to gender-based violence and female genital mutilation or cutting. So thank you so much for joining us today, Wangari. Oh, you're welcome. It was uh, lovely having this conversation. It helps you unpack your thoughts around the issues, but also highlight, you know, from my perspective located at Women's Health and Women's Health and having worked with racialized women for so many years. So I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Wangari, for joining us and for bringing your words of wisdom and your experiences. And to our listeners, don't forget to visit our website, flourishaccess.ca, to learn more about the Flourish Project, about female genital mutilation, gender-based violence, and to access useful resources.